This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no illiteracy. This is Encounter 303. Read this book, Flying Saucer Occupants. Today, we're going to look at a book that is not only informative and interesting, but kind of vital in a way, and once upon a time, pretty ubiquitous. That book is Flying Saucer Occupants by Coral and Jim Lawrenson. If you've been listening for a while, you'll be familiar with the Lawrensons. Coral, along with her husband Jim, established the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, in 1952. It quickly established branches in most U.S. states and several other nations around the world, and it would persist in some form until 1988, by which time organizations like MUFON had emerged, and the impending rise of the Internet meant that information sharing between saucer investigators and enthusiasts and the general public would soon become more multifaceted and honestly a little confusing. But in the 1950s and 60s, as far as I can sort of figure out, the path of information sharing between saucer sighters and the mass of the people went something like this. Saucer organizations published newsletters and zines with reports of sightings, including those called from newspapers, investigations by organization personnel, things pulled from other organizations' newsletters and magazines, and, and so on. Smaller zines would provide their readers with curated reports from the larger national organizations' publications, as well as from national news stories. So that's sort of how information got from those who were interested in investigating flying saucers and writing about them to those who were interested very specifically in reading about flying saucers. But what about everybody else? What about the general public? The answer in the 1950s and 60s, especially the 60s, was relatively cheap paperbacks. Books by major saucer figures like Coral Lorenzen or NICAP's Donald Kehoe appeared several times throughout the decade. Flying saucer-focused broadcaster Frank Edwards released books with titles like Flying Saucers, Serious Business, and Flying Saucers, Here and Now, that featured dozens of cases presented for flying saucer newbies. Signet, the uh, paperback imprint of New American Library, Bantam Books, for example, these were major sources of these kinds of paperbacks, including Flying Saucer Occupants, which was published by Signet. The cover price in 1967 was 75 cents, which, adjusting for inflation, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is a little under $6 in 2017 money. That's a pretty reasonable cost of entry to the UFO field, certainly less expensive than many UFO books today, and we'll talk more about that later. But for now, let's take a look at Flying Saucer Occupants. The book begins with an introduction from a Dr. Frank Salisbury, a professor of plant sciences at Utah State University. What does plant sciences have to do with Flying Saucer Occupants? Not a lot, but he's a scientist willing to have his name associated with the topic, so that, that kind of works. Salisbury says one thing in particular that's pretty interesting in hindsight. The whole UFO business has finally begun to become respectable. More and more individual scientists are developing the courage to investigate this almost forbidden area. 
And now, the Condon Committee at the University of Colorado, supported in its 18-month study by a sizable proportion of a million dollars furnished by the United States Air Force, places upon this topic the stamp of approval for scientific investigation. We'll be discussing it in long form at some point in the future, but the upshot is that the Condon Committee did investigate many UFO cases. Unfortunately for the ufology field, the conclusion that these scientists came to eventually was that the phenomenon did not warrant further scientific scrutiny or Air Force resources. It was a huge watershed, a sort of dividing line, after which the laughter curtain about flying saucer claims was much more firmly established. After all, the scientific commission that the government sponsored to look into this said there's really nothing to look into. And so why do we care? said the general public, news media, etc. In the book proper, early on, the Lorenzons present a chapter on contactees. Hooray, I hear you shout, contactees are awesome! And indeed they are, dear listener. The Lorenzons, however, are not as enthusiastic about such things, and, and they attempt to diagnose the reasons why contactee claims have surfaced. There can be no doubt that we live in tense times. The problems of coping with a complicated world on a personal as well as a national level produce an emotional tension which faces no visible prospect of release since the future promises only further complications. For the most part, the traditional avenues of release through religious expression are blocked because in the face of modern technology, the traditional mediators have lost their validity. We are faced with a growing spiritual hunger. If a spiritual hunger exists, a need for reassurance and solace it should not surprise us to find certain self-appointed prophets profiting from it. This, by the way, is very similar in tone and content to the way in which nuts and bolts flying saucer books would explain or dismiss, depending on the author, the entire contactee phase of flying saucer history. The Lorenzons also reserve some extra sarcasm for one contactee in particular, whose name they don't mention, but whose activities we might. Several of these have emerged from obscure backgrounds, assumed titles such as doctor and professor, and proceeded to spread the new doctrine. For one, at least, this simply meant a change of props. In a previous self-appointed position as Grand Lama of the Royal Order of Tibet, operated by his own admission as a front for prohibition bootlegging activities, he had attributed certain gems of wisdom and salvation to the ancient masters of the Orient. In his new role, he simply attributed the same gems to our space brothers, gave lectures, sold books and pictures, a much more suitable line of pursuit for an aging gentleman than the rigorous and insecure avocation of bootlegging. Of course, our friend here is none other than George Adamski. The Lorenzons also touch on one of our other favorites, Truman Bethram. Here, they engage in some amateur psychology in order to explain Truman's claims of his activities and experiences. Without going into detail concerning the intercourse, social, that followed, it seems germane to point out that, though a clarion is a small trumpet, it is so named because it makes a clear sound. It is suggested here that the symbolic meaning relates more closely to the Latin root word clarus, meaning clear, that the intended function of the clarionites was to clear up the clouded, confused aspects of Bethram's life. Supporting this is the fact that their lady captain's name translates almost directly as characteristic of rain. We all know that a dominant characteristic of rain is that it clears the air. The planet Clarion is quite close, Bethram tells us, but is hidden from us by the moon. We should not be too surprised to find in the case of a gentleman whose ship is captained by a woman that the source of that vehicle is hidden from sight by the lady of the night, 
La Luna. We might further conjecture that such a gentleman might be in trouble in the area of masculine prowess. When we consider, in addition, the fact that Mrs. Bethram subsequently sued for divorce, naming Ora Rains as a correspondent and complaining that Truman had neglected marital duties because of the spacewoman, our conjecture seems justified. After disposing of the contactees, the Lawrensons present a report from Brazilian APRO investigator Dr. Olavo Fontes. Fontes's account is about a farmer named Antonio Vias Boas. He'd had some extraordinary experiences in October of 1957 and was working in his field when he saw a very strange object. It was rather rounded and was full of little purplish lights all around it, and it had a large red headlight in front from which the light had been coming which I'd noticed when it was higher up and which had hampered my vision. But now the shape of the machine could clearly be seen, and it looked like a large elongated egg with three metal spurs in front of it. They were three metal bars, thick at one end and spiked at the tip. Their color was indistinguishable, for it was hidden by a bright phosphorescence, and this was reddish, of the same shade as that of the front headlight. Over the machine there was something which rotated at a great speed, also having a sharp fluorescent reddish light. After the craft landed, he was chased by a small figure and, as he was pursued, attacked by three other similarly small beings. Antonio was taken aboard the strange craft, and he describes the strange beings who were studying him. For endless moments I stood in that room, both my arms held fast by two of the men, while those strange people watched me and apparently talked about me. I say talk as a manner of speech, for what they said had no resemblance whatever to human speech. They talked in growls, like dogs do in a way. This comparison is not quite fitting, but it's the only one I can think of to attempt to describe those sounds. So different were they from anything I ever heard before. The grunts were emitted slowly. They were neither high-pitched nor too low. Some were longer, others shorter, sometimes containing different sounds at the same time, at other times ending in a tremor. But they sounded to me only like animal growls, and there was nothing that could be taken for a sound of a syllable or for a word in a foreign language. The beings stripped him naked, and his ordeal began to get a whole lot worse, or at least a whole lot more strange. Antonio finds himself being further poked and prodded by the beings who also took a blood sample. After being left alone for quite a while, a new visitor appears. The door was open, and a woman was coming in walking toward me. She came in slowly, unhurriedly, perhaps a little amused at the amazement she saw written on my face. I stared open-mouthed, which is not surprising, for the woman was entirely naked, as naked as I was, and barefoot too. Besides, she was beautiful, though of a different type of beauty compared with that of the women I have known. Her hair was blonde, nearly white, like hair dyed in peroxide. It was smooth, not very thick, with a part in the center, and she had big blue eyes, rather longer and round, for they slanted outward like those pencil-drawn girls made to look like Arabian princesses that look as if they were slit. That was what they were like, except that they were natural. There was no makeup. Her nose was straight, not pointed, nor turned up, nor too big. The contour of her face was different, though, because she had very high, prominent cheekbones that made her face look very wide, wider than that of an Indio native. Underneath her cheekbones, her face narrowed to a peak, so that all of a sudden it ended in a pointed chin, which gave the lower part of her face a very pointed look. Her lips were very thin, nearly invisible in fact. Her ears, which I only saw later, were small and did not seem any different from ordinary ears. Her high cheekbones gave one the impression that there was a broken bone somewhere underneath, 
but as I discovered later, they were soft and fleshy to the touch. They did not seem to be made of bone. Her body was very much more beautiful than any I have seen before. It was slim, and her breasts stood up high and well separated. Her waistline was thin, her belly flat, her hips well developed, and her thighs large. Her feet were small, her hands long and narrow, her fingers and nails were normal. She was much shorter than I am, her head only reaching my shoulder. They end up having sex in a manner that initially seems to be a bit against Antonio's wishes. He succumbs, however, and acknowledges that the experience was normal, whatever that might mean. Eventually, the strange, small woman tires of him, and Antonio reflects on the entire experience. By now, she had begun to deny herself to me, trying to avoid me and to escape, to end the matter. When I noticed that, I too became frigid, seeing that that was all they wanted, a good stallion to improve their own stock. After all, that was all they were concerned with. I was angry, but decided not to attach any importance to the fact, for anyhow, I'd spent a few agreeable moments with the woman. Of course, I would never exchange her for one of ours. I like one one can talk to, understand, and get along with, and with this woman that was impossible. Some of the growls that came out of her at certain times nearly spoiled everything, as they gave me the disagreeable impression of lying with an animal. The Antonio vs. Boa's case would go down in flying saucer history as one of the first abduction-like experiences. As in later abduction accounts, there's a strong sense of clinical or medical activities on the part of the visitors. With the sexual encounter as well, there are overtones of reproduction and breeding. These were also to be significant characteristics of abduction stories in decades to come. Flying Saucer Occupants was most readers' first exposure to this case at the time and for years afterward, and its details would appear in dozens, perhaps hundreds of books subsequent to this. But no matter where that account appeared in other books, this was a book written by the people who ran APRO, and the case was originally investigated by an APRO investigator. So this is, this is kind of the, you know, sort of subject zero for this account. Another significant story told in the book is that of Betty and Barney Hill, whose 1961 abduction experience would provide templates for later encounters, including the use of hypnosis to retrieve the memories of the events in question. I am, um, I'm doing this sort of sarcastic air quotes over retrieve and memories with regard to abduction hypnosis. Although John Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey, was the standard account of the Hill case, I have to believe that many flying saucer buffs, or sort of novice flying saucer buffs, got their first exposure to it, if not from this particular book, from another book like it that dealt with a wide variety of cases and encounters. So apart from relating two of the most significant abduction stories in flying saucer history, the book also spans the globe recounting numerous strange encounters with unusual beings, such as this encounter from Italy in 1954. At Isola, in northern Italy, on November 14th, a farmer watched a cigar-shaped craft land near him and hid to watch. Out of the machine came three small dwarfish beings dressed in metallic diving suits, who centered their attention on the rabbits in their cages. The beings made strange noises among themselves. Convinced the things were going to steal the animals, the farmer slipped away, got his rifle, and returned and aimed it at the dwarfs. The rifle would not fire, and it became so heavy in the man's hands that he had to drop it. He also found that he could not move or speak. 
The dwarves took the rabbits, got into their craft, which, like most of its type, left soundlessly with a bright trail behind it. After the dwarves had left, the farmer found he could move again, and he picked up his gun and fired it, but the object was too far away to be hit. He told the story to his family. It soon spread and was investigated. The witness is considered to be reliable. There's also the 1961 case of Wisconsin chicken farmer Joe Simonton. At 11 a.m. that morning, Simonton was startled by a strange loud noise outside and above his farmhouse. He stepped to the window and was surprised to see a silvery object coming down vertically in his yard. He approached the object with no fear, whereupon a hatch in the upper portion opened and he saw three dark-skinned men inside. One of them handed him a silvery jug with two handles, made a motion like drinking, apparently indicating that he wanted water. Simonton took the jug, filled it, and handed it back. Looking into the object, he saw a man cooking on some kind of flameless cooking appliance. There were several small, perforated, cookie-like objects beside the griddle, and Simonton motioned that he wanted one, whereupon one of the men handed four of them to him. Then the object took off at a 45-degree angle and was gone in just a few seconds. As it left, pine trees near the takeoff path bowed over, apparently as a result of air turbulence as the object went over. After chapters which sort of span the globe, or at least the United States, Europe, and South America, um, presenting stories of strange flying saucer occupant encounters, the Lorenzins have a chapter on the censorship situation surrounding UFOs or flying saucers, in which they name drop the Robertson panel, a subject for a much lengthier discussion down the road. They also have a chapter on the technology of flying saucers, as far as they can tell what it is, and also the psychological aspects of encounters with flying saucer beings. So it's 1967, and after mentioning occasionally that you think this flying saucer thing is pretty nifty, somebody gets you a copy of this book for your birthday. If this were the only book you ever read about flying saucers, it would give you a very thorough grounding, not just in some of the basic theories about UFOs, but also summaries of some of the most important cases, not just in the United States, but also in Europe and South America. With the information in this book, even today, in 2017, you would be able to carry on a pretty knowledgeable conversation about the topic. Honestly, you'd pretty much just be missing Roswell and other crashed saucer conspiracies. But the material in the chapter on the Hills and the V.S. Boas case would enable you to bluff your way through conversations about abductions, and being able to recount all the sexy details in Brazil would make you the hit of any holiday party you attend, or get you thrown out for being some kind of pervert. I took a look at Amazon to see if there were any UFO books on the top of their UFO listings that fulfilled a similar duty as flying saucer occupants. And um, I decided right off the bat not to try to find any book that would do that job for the less than $6 that book would cost today, because that ain't going to happen. But from what I saw... At any price, there really aren't books at the top of that list, easily sort of findable, that do exactly the same thing. There are some marvelous books on there. Um, UFOs, Reframing the Debate, which is an excellent collection of essays by some writers who I admire very much, and I recommend the book highly. But it's not for beginners. 
Similarly, there are books that consist of extensive investigations of individual cases, such as Kevin Randall's new book on the Socorro incident, which the Lawrensons discussed a bit in Flying Saucer Occupants. And there's the usual Area 51, Underground Base, New World Order conspiracy-type books. There's nothing for the beginner. Really, at least nothing I would be comfortable giving to a beginner. So if there's no broad overview of flying saucer activity sorts of books out there now, nothing like Frank Edwards' Flying Saucers Here and Now, or one of Donald Kehoe's books, or the Lorenzen's books, where do newbies go for information on a broad range of UFO topics when they know nothing? What's the best one-stop shop for this? Is it a book? Is it a website? I want to know your suggestions, and I bet other listeners would want to know your suggestions as well. So hit me up on Twitter or email, and in the future, we'll take a look at what the collective intelligence of the Saucer Life listenership recommends on this. We'll be back after the new year with our next encounter, The Zine Scene, 1955. Over our year-end break, there may be a brief bonus encounter or two, so be sure to uh, follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whatever your preferred podcast app is through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.